This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning, everybody. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. Can you dig it? I can. Good morning, everybody. Again, it is about 8 o'clock a.m. here, Central Time, 9 o'clock Eastern in Austin, Texas, and welcome to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast, hosted by me, Sam LaCrosse, so thank you all for joining. Um, big weekend this weekend for a lot of reasons. Uh, if you are a sports fan, if you are a Cleveland sports fan, where I am from, this is a big weekend for you guys. Um, Ohio State has a big game in about three hour, no, not, uh, six and a half hours, rather, uh, against Purdue. Uh, the Boilermakers are having a good season this year. They've upset two top five teams, I believe, in the last like three weeks or something crazy, which is, which is nuts. Um, and so that's a big game for us. We've had our struggles with them. They've, you know, they kicked the shit out of us a couple years ago, and as a Buckeyes fan, making me a little nervous. And so, you know, we're going to have fun watching that game. The Browns play the New England Patriots tomorrow, so with all the fiasco surrounding all those people, it's going to be crazy. My boy Max Holloway fighting today. I Max Holloway was the person who got me into the UFC way back in, I want to say, really early 2021, where he just absolutely fucking went into the Matrix and pieced up Calvin Cater like nobody's business. That got me into the UFC, so I'm excited to watch my guy Max Holloway fight again today um, as he runs up for another title run. So, But before that, we are going to talk today about something that I have talked about a lot in posts that I've written throughout, and I've never really written a post on the topic itself, and I've wanted to for a while. I honestly don't know why it's, it's taken me this long to really kind of figure it out, piece it together, everything like that, you know, so I've never really kind of, one, it's a hard topic to write about because it really is kind of a deeper um, improvement psychological topic that I really have never found a way to piece together and I needed to read more, I needed to research more, I needed to put all the pieces together, but I think I finally found at least a somewhat cohesive argument about how to position this concept properly to a lot of people, including myself, because it's a hard concept to wrap your head around. A lot of people fuck it up, including myself. A lot of people get it wrong, and I wanted to make sure that in this context of the conversation, I get it right so that when I do eventually say what I'm about to say in probably about 10 seconds or something, that I get it right. So with that being said, here we go. So another week, another rant. So last week was a big week for some. I always think political elections are bizarre, particularly after a, the really bizarre one we had when we elected Joe Biden to be our 46th president this time last year. But in off-major election years, I never really got the point. Sure, some state legislatures change hands, some new local businessmen get put on school boards, a dude who has a strange affinity for sweater vests and a skin complexion, aka akin to a glass of day-old milk, won the gubernatorial race in Virginia. 
I didn't think any of this was that big of a deal. That was my alarm, in case you didn't really see that. That was really funny. So, but apparently it was a big deal, at least to some. Conservative and Republican voters had a field day. Day-old milk guy, now governor-elect Glenn Youngkin, won the Virginia governorship over Bill Clinton's best friend Terry McAuliffe. Long Island swung red as well. Almost tyrant Phil Murphy nearly got thrown out of the governorship of New Jersey. Some truck driver busted up a 20-year-old union official while spending a grand total of $153, a good portion of those funds donated to buying coffee and donuts. San Francisco and Seattle elected Republicans, which is basically more rare than seeing a unicorn shit out of rainbow. New York City elected a pro-Second Amendment former cop as their mayor to replace our friend Bill de Blasio. That's about as conservative as the city will get, in my estimation. Overall, it was a red wave that was loved and hated equally by about half the country, depending on who you listen to and what you think. But for those who know their political history, it might not have seemed too intense of a shift. This happened in both the early 90s and the late 2000s to the exact same party at the exact same time. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Joe Biden, while initially running as moderates, shifted some of their stances quite dramatically, some in some cases, not others. Further to the left in the classic political bait and switch, Republicans do the same, so, same as well, typically. Voters noticed this and clocked them in the face. With major elections coming next year, we should expect the same. Pundits from across political lines called this election season a, quote, bellwether for what was to come. So, in reality, what happened in our electoral process last week wasn't really all that shocking. It wasn't. We've seen this before and we'll, we'll most likely see it again quite soon. It happens to conservatives just as much as it happens to liberals, as I just said. People adjust. People don't like our elected leaders really leaning into one area or another, it seems. They're right in their assertions. Regardless of what some people might be currently saying, we do still have to like each other at least a little bit. But as it turns out, I did notice something drastic. It wasn't the results of the elections across the country. It was the reactions to the results of the elections across the country. In my post a couple weeks ago about the flip-floppery of our binary political classes, I pointed out that the reactions stemming from both sides of the aisle were getting more and more strange, and this election cycle was no exception. The amount of blame that was casted down from everywhere, particularly on the more liberal side of the equation since they were on the losing side in this sense, I railed more on conservatives in this last time, and since it swung the other way, liberals obviously did the same thing this time, was laid on quite thick. Some Democrats blamed other Democrats for either being too moderate or too progressive. It's their fault, you see. Republicans began their strange claims of calling liberal-leaning mainstream news hosts racists again. It's their fault, you see. Terry McAuliffe blamed Donald Trump, a man that hasn't held elected office in over a year. It's his fault, you see. And the strangest claim of all, some pundits simply claimed their problems were imagined, a ruse put on by everyone in order to throw them away from power. It's their fault, you see. As these observations rolled in, I asked myself one question. How can people in charge of anything, and in this case the most important thing, the way the direction of the country goes, seem so completely and hopelessly out of control? We dented this question a few weeks back during our discussion about our expert class. Our expert class, as it turns out, are not experts in anything. Nothing at all. Rather, they're mostly fraudulent cons who have masqueraded as experts in order to cling to power. So we already know that that's bullshit. But what about the rest of us? The people that aren't on TV? The normal people who seem out of control? The people who can never get, seem to get their shit together? These are questions that are worth looking into. Thankfully, a countercultural movement has been taking place for a good while, 
Throughout the past five-ish years, a remedy to this issue of control has begun to be unearthed. In my experience, this movement was centered around three people. You've heard of them, particularly if you've taken a lot of my content, which is about seven of you, so probably not if you're tuning into this podcast for the first time. We're going to start with two of them and make our way to the third as we move along in this podcast. Jocko Willink and Jordan Peterson have taken the world by storm since both came to prominence in the latter half of the 2010s. The two of them are friends. They've both been on one another's podcasts and look to one another for positive examples of how to behave in the world. The two men preach on two respective themes, ownership and responsibility. We'll get to more of the Latin this later, but the two subjects are both definitively linked and definitively important. These two concepts are resonating powerfully throughout our culture. Even those who don't like them refuse to acknowledge their power. Men have been the primary beneficiary of them, from my observation, both due to the concepts themselves and the overall masculine appeal of both Willink and Peterson. They're confident, strong, and virtuous men. They're the best of us, in my estimation. They're looked to as role models by a lot of people, including myself. Why is this? Well, there are many reasons. I just listed two of them. But there is a deeper one, in my opinion. One that gets overlooked because of its simplicity, but is the most powerful thing within that each holds together. Their appeal. The allure of ownership and responsibility is that they're incredibly appealing when talked about in proper fashion. Look no further than these two men espousing both of these qualities. Both Willink and Peterson seem to have remarkable control over everything in their life, like literally everything, with the exception of a horrendously horrendous string of bad luck that Peterson endured in the last two years due to his and his family's health. They have had their ducks in order. Their rooms are clean. They're envied, and rightly so, by many. The most amazing thing about this is that these two men, contrary to the opinion of most who view them, are not that exceptional. They're not extraordinary. This is hard to believe at first glance, particularly in the case of Willink, who looks like he could pull a J.J. Watt and tackle a small house. Jordan Peterson is perhaps the most deeply precise mind I've ever heard speak. Jocko Willink is one of the most overall impressive people I've ever seen in my life. They've both done incredible things. They've helped people. They've run successful businesses. They have great wives and successful children. They do things that actually matter. They treat people with respect. They have values. They stand up for them. So shouldn't this make them extraordinary? Well, I would say not necessarily. There's a saying that gets tossed around frequently about icebergs. You only see a small tip of the iceberg when it goes out of the water. Most of the structure is located underneath the surface where no one can see it. I would argue that this exact principle applies to both of these men, along with anyone who is in the same realm as them. Jocko Willink and Jordan Peterson are just like all of us. They're flawed and fucked up people, and they've both been very open about it. Jocko Willink, before he became one of the biggest badasses in popular culture and a war hero, was not good at anything in his youth. He wasn't the best athlete, friend, son, or student. He kind of was a fuck-up. He's openly admitted that he probably would have gone to prison if he didn't go into the Navy. Men died on his watch when he was fighting terrorists overseas. Jordan Peterson used to be a somewhat high-functioning drunk who smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. He was impatient. He bit off more than he could chew. He made several catastrophic mistakes with patients in his clinical practice. His family life always hasn't been smooth sailing. But yet they've captured so much of society's attention. The reason for this is because, regardless of their self-admitted flaws and wrongdoings, they're still in control and in charge. And that's a powerful thing to see. Adversity hits and somewhat levels all of us. To see people who have overcome so much of it and are still finding a way to positively impact people is truly a sight to behold in this day and age. And the allure of this is completely understandable. 
Toxic victimhood, the mob, our ruling class, and our experts all have their own nefarious ways of making us feel disempowered in one way or another in our own minds. Motivational speeches give us false assertions of our own competence when none are warranted. Like Scarface said, not the movie one, the rapper one, our minds are playing tricks on us. There are so many ways to turn that what could lead us to little control we have in our lives is being taken turn that could lead to what little control we have in our lives being taken from us. Because so much is out of control in reality. You can be the biggest Nazi-esque freak about your life in one way or another and still have your car smashed by a wayward tree branch. You can do all the work in whatever fashion you choose and you'd still get fucked in the ass by an economic crash. But there are still things you can control to give yourself the best protection possible. Ownership is everything. In the words of the Mandalorian, this is, indeed, the way. The way of the double J's, Jocko and Jordan. Anyone who tries to cheat the system of owning the things that happen in their lives are cheating themselves of how to prevent their lives from getting thrown to the wolves. To ignore this advice is foolish, and you do it at your own peril. But in the worlds of the almighty Jocko, this task is simple but not easy. There's a reason why Will and Ken Peterson are as revered as they are. It's because they are willing to do the things within the confines of their lives that not many others are willing to do. In order to strive for their levels of personal control, we need to realize what ownership is, how it manifests and summon all the different areas of your life, and why ownership is, at the end of the day, everything. Now let's stand by and get some, or clean your rooms, whatever the alternatives is of your preference. Read the books, people, if you don't get my pop culture references. Read the books. So it's been a while since my girlfriend, the dictionary, and I went on a date. I'm overdue. Therefore, I think a double definition should make up for lost time. The definition for the word owner, as derived from the word ownership, is, quote, a person who owns something, one who has the legal and rightful title to something, to one to whom property belongs. The definition for the word responsibility is, quote, the state of being the person who caused something to happen, a duty or task you are required or expected to do. End quote. Excuse me. As you can see, the two words are nearly identical in both their context and their meaning. They both have to do with people at the individual level. They both have the context built within them of obligation to another duty that must be done. They both are possessives. It's an interesting dichotomy of language that is incredibly hard to decipher. But it can be deciphered. And the key is not the words themselves, but the order of the words. To own something means that you have full control over it, or, quote, rightful title. That means it is firmly within your grasp. Responsibility is a task that must be done, or a, quote, state of being that you are, quote, required or expected to do. The reason the two words sound as similarly as they do is not because they are the same, but because they are linked. There is a chronology that must be followed in order to fully comprehend their relationship. If we dig into the chronology further, we realize that responsibility must come before ownership. Responsibility is the active search process, the thing that you must engage in repeatedly in order to eventually gain a hold of something. When you want to maintain a marriage, you must take responsibility for it. Only after you take responsibility can you have control over your marriage. It may still fall apart, but it gives you the best chance for it to survive. Ownership comes afterwards. This is not to say that you own your wife or significant other. I like to think that we're an evolved people and people are not property. This should be obvious. But your marriage is a shared arrangement, one that two people involved definitely do own. 
After you and your significant other take responsibility, you can then own a successful marriage. The examples are endless, but the pattern, much like the song, shout out to Led Zeppelin, again, listen to the music if you have not listened to the music, stays the same. Responsibility has to come first in all instances. You must be expected to do something in order to get that something. There are no free lunches in our society, at least none that are worth eating. You cannot have ownership without first having responsibility. At the end of the day, you must own your own life. But action must come before reward. I read Jocko Willink before I read Jordan Peterson, so I think it would be wise to start there. I was recommended his magnum opus, Extreme Ownership. Read your Latin if you don't know what magnum opus means, by the way. <laughs> when I was a freshman in college by a professor of mine, he said that at near age of 50, it was the best book on personal growth he had read in some time. And this is no schmuck either. This guy was a highly cerebral and whip-smart from nearly every possible angle you can manage. Imagine, I should say. I took his advice and bought the book. And when I first dove into the book, it rattled me quite a bit. The reason for this was because I had never read anything that was quite like it before. It was an absolutely revolutionary concept to me. From the inception of my education up until that point, there has been a pattern that has been hammered into my brain the entire life. And that pattern was a simple chain of cause and effect. A happened and B was the result of A happening. 2 plus 2 equals 4. It was that simple. But it turns out that that simplicity could be upended. To Jocko Willing, cause and effect don't exist, at least in the traditional sense. Blame was not so easily cast in the direction of someone or, someone or something or some other. Instead, Willing shifted that blame completely to one thing. The person on whom that effect affected. In Willing's analysis, it was completely and utterly irrational to blame someone else for something that had happened, particularly the party that, quote, caused that something to happen. And his reasoning was simple. It should not matter because causes happen all the time. They come from endless alternatives and combinations of probabilities. If you spend your days rationalizing whatever and whoever caused something good or bad to happen within the confines of your own life, you simply won't do anything. You'll simply drive yourself nuts with trying to perfect an imperfect science, which is a horrible waste of time for anyone who attempts to do so. And your head will probably pull an arena spalco and catch on fire. That wouldn't be great either. When you look at this from a thousand feet, this logic makes absolute sense. The amount of variance that take pl takes place in our lives is infinite. There is no statistical analysis that can hope to quantify all the different factors and situations that make up an individual's day-to-day -day life, much less close to the 8 billion of us that inhabit this planet. Throw those other eight, close to 8 billion individualized and their infinite possibilities in a pot with yours and you have a complete and utter clusterfuck. This is where Arena Spalco's head catches on fire, by the way. Or the three people that gaze into the Ark of the Covenant spontaneously combust whatever Indiana Jones film of is your preference. Hint, it should be Rares the Lost Ark. You're probably some sort of communist, or at least I will think you're a communist. Willing's perspective on ownership blew my mind because it shifted something that I thought was concrete. Your locus of control. It taught me that when you voluntarily undertake a shift in your mindset so that you, quote, own everything in your life, you can theoretically fix any problem. Things that you thought were not possible instantly become possible. Things that you thought you could never accomplish instantly become accomplishable. And there's a great power in that. But it's not without its limits. The book was, and still is, a smash hit. Lots of people cite from and read it often. But the concept itself has one flaw. A major flaw. Willink, to his usual credit, admitted to this. And not only did he admit to it, he wrote another book making up for the mistake of the old book. That takes balls, no matter what you say, in my opinion. 
That new book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, was the salve on that wound. In the first section of the book, I think literally actually the first section, Willink and his co-author and friend Leif Babin explained to the reader that you can take too much ownership as well. You can't control everything in life. As we explained before, there is simply too much variance. There is also the problem of those other people. Remember, we all coexist and interact with one another, at least we should. In a society that is built upon those interactions with other people, aka a democratic republic, which is what our, our nation is based off of, it would be unwise to assert complete ownership over someone else's life. It's a tyrannical move for a non-tyrannical society, and we shouldn't try it. So, enter Jordan Peterson. A couple of years later, Jordan Peterson released 12 Rules for Life, which has become one of the most successful books of the 21st century. His book, it turns out, was the yin to the yang of Willink's analysis. Peterson's book is a harsh one. It doesn't hold much back from the truth of life. Life is very hard and oftentimes tragic. There are things that happen within everyone's that are truly terrible. Life is suffering, as the Buddhists say. You can get fucked by it from almost every possible way without even lifting a finger. And that's a horrifying thing to come to grips with. But there's an antidote to it. An antidote to chaos is the subtitle of the book, by the way. That antidote is responsibility. In order to avoid being completely set adrift in the chaos of existence, you must voluntarily assert order within that domain. The way you assert yourself is through responsibility. There are going to be horrible things that happen. COVID-19 probably wasn't your fault, neither was 9-11, nor Hurricane Katrina, nor whatever the fuck. If you really wanted to rationalize that, you could, but that would probably lead to the Indiana Jones-style nuclear option, which I'm assuming most would like to avoid if possible. In undertaking responsibility for your life, you are not absolving the, your world of suffering. This is a mistake people make when they undertake this. It's impossible to remove it from your world. It's a universal constant of life. But responsibility does something else. It justifies your existence. There is no point of, in living your life if you are constantly in pain with no hope of escape. That is a fate we should never wish on a decent person. Therefore, you must have a way to find coexistence with that suffering. And responsibility is that way. When you undergo a responsible life, you take on some of the suffering in your world with your shoulders back. That's the first rule number one, by the way. You stand your ground and tell the world to bring it, because you can take it. In taking on that suffering and being confident about your ability to weather its storm, you inherently prop yourself up as someone who can move forward in life with competence. Competence is the great equalizer to suffering. It allows you to maneuver through it, through it in order to give yourself the best chance of success in a wide variety of domains. It's impossible to do this with all of them, but it's very possible to do this with the ones that matter most to you. But this puzzle is still incomplete. This analysis rests on a tripod. We've only discussed two legs. But, as I mentioned in the intro, there is a third. Without that third leg, this tripod cannot stand. The other leg is also someone I revere highly. He changed my life. In fact, it is this person and the two gentlemen I've been beating you over the head with for this whole podcast that I think are the three most influential person I have to look into in my life outside my family. And that third leg is Mark Manson. Mark Manson, remarkably, released his seminal work, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, in the same time frame as Peterson and Willink. Manson touched on the values primarily while also on values primarily rather, while also incorporating responsibility and ownership into his work. 
This would prove to be unbelievably valuable to me and hopefully the millions of readers who actually got the message of what he was trying to say throughout. We've already established by nature of the definitions and the actions of those definitions that responsibility must come before ownership. But again, this is only two parts of a three-part puzzle. One of Mark Manson's ideas comes from respons before responsibility, and it's necessary to explore that idea to fully complete the puzzle. Early in his work, Manson makes a massive attempt at delineating between two concepts, fault and responsibility. See why this comes before Peterson now? In Manson's idea, there are two things that happen, much like cause and effect. Someone is at fault and someone is responsible for that fault. For example, I crash my car into a church's chicken while high on bath salts. It's my fault for getting high on bath salts and slamming a motor vehicle into a fast food franchise. But who has responsibility? That is always a difficult question to answer. Most people get it wrong. Most people would say that the asshole high on bath salts who crashed the car, hint me, I actually don't do bath salts, is responsible. But this is wrong. Because let's think of the aftermath of the scenario. The person who runs into the church's chicken probably goes apeshit, who runs the church's chicken probably goes apeshit ballistic and calls the cops. I, the idiot on basalts, gets arrested and thrown into prison. But there's still a fast food restaurant with a used Toyota Camry sticking out of the drive through window and a fuck ton of basalts that has been sprayed into the fryers. I can't fix that from inside a jail cell, it turns out. There is a difference between fault and responsibility. This is what is so important about the role Mark Manson plays in this equation. It's very simple. Not everything is your fault, but everything is your responsibility. It's not your fault that some asshole took a bath salt and do shit all over your life as a church's chicken franchise owner, but it is your responsibility to remedy the situation because no one else is going to do it for you. I certainly can. I'm in prison, remember? Someone's got to clean out the fryers, pull the car out of the drive through side window, and rebuild the wall. I'm not going to do it for you. Again, I am in prison. The police aren't going to do it for you. No one is going to do it for you. And think about the consequences if you don't. There's a giant fucking gaping hole in the side of your restaurant. What if it rains? What if a tornado hits? What if people decide that it's somewhat sketchy to eat fried chicken in a place frequented by bath salts ingesting maniacs who drive used Toyota Camrys? These are all very real possibilities. Throw them together in a blender and you can, it can absolutely tank your business and, therefore, your life. The only natural solution is that of responsibility. Clean up the fryers. Get the fucking bath salts out of the fries. Call a tow truck to remove the used Toyota Camry. Call a contractor to fix the fucking wall. Do these things. Do not hesitate to do these things. Stand up straight with your shoulders back and face the inevitable suffering that comes with doing bath salts head on. If you don't, there will be consequences. There are a lot of people who sell fried chicken. There are a lot of people that sell good fried chicken. You have no time to waste. Get responsible or get to closing your business. This is the mindset that will lead to success. All roads, when driven properly, lead to responsibility. Not everything is your fault, but everything is your responsibility. And responsibility, when undertaken correctly, leads to ownership. It's not the church's chicken owner's fault that I want to snort bath salts and ram my car into his eating establishment, but he must take responsibility for it, or else he will go out of business and fuck his and his family's life over. When he takes responsibility for the issue, it will most likely fix the problem, barring me getting out of prison, doing more bath salts, and taking out another wall. 
Upon the responsibility, taking the responsibility to fix the problem, he will therefore take ownership of that problem. The thing that he is, quote, required or expected to, to do will lead him taking the, quote, rightful title of that thing that he values. At the end of the day, all that ownership is, is a tool that gives you the insight, perception, and realization that how your life is lived is completely up to you. It's all your choice on how you want it to turn out for yourself. When you lay the puzzle pieces in a row of the great and powerful Manson, Peterson, and Willink in that order, you can see where this train leads. The delineation of the fault and responsibility of an, of an event leads to you taking responsibility, which leads to you taking ownership over that event. Upon this chain of events, you are rewarded with a large amount of control over the outcome, i.e. ownership. This is why these men lead lives to be desired. This is why they had their shit together. It's not because they're perfect. That's not possible. It's because they're imperfect and they know it. It's because they have to fix a lot of shit and go about doing it in the right way. They're not successful because they're lucky, although luck always plays a part in it, fortunately for all of us. They're successful because they've taken upon themselves to do what it takes in order to live successfully. But it's one thing to talk about men like this who are such masters of their craft. We can't all co-write the great Will Smith's memoir, lead multiple companies through the lens of Navy SEALs, and impact the lives of millions while talking about lobsters. I think it's a dilution of this concept from a macro to micro level is needed. This is a concept that we all should use. So let's boil it down to get a place to where we all can use it. So, being a toxically, toxically masculine straight white male, I have an obligation to make at least one Fight Club reference per post. It's a new amendment to the United States Constitution. I'm a big fan of the United States Constitution. Here's my part in doing a service to my country. Shout out to all the veterans. Happy Veterans Day, by the way, everybody. I am not a veteran. In one of the most important scenes of the film, the narrator and Tyler Durden are at a bar. The narrator, an automotive recall specialist, is distraught. Upon returning home from a business trip, he met Durden, a, quote, soap salesman, on the plane ride back. His entire life had, quite literally, blown up in front of his face. He got out of his airport taxi to realize his apartment had burst into flames. A gas leak, the fire department told him. Every single thing that he owned, other than the clothes on his back, had been destroyed. He had fancy furniture. He wore decent clothes. He had things that a lot of people would be envious of. But now all of that was gone due to something that was completely out of his control. Random explosions, to Mark Manson's point, are not the fault of the person to whom they happen to. The narrator is drowning himself in alcohol. He's beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. Durden, on the other hand, is smiling, sitting opposite him drinking a glass of whiskey. He seems overjoyed that this has happened to the narrator. The narrator, quite a neurotic fuck if I do say so myself, notices this. He makes a comment at Durden, appalled at how happy he can be at the narrator's purely abject misery. Durden, the completely opposite of the narrator, begins to speak his duality. He doesn't have, just have nothing. He is nothing. Tyler Durden is completely untethered from the earth. He doesn't give a single fuck about anything except for the raw and bridled freedom that he enjoys. He begins to roll his philosophy off his tongue in ever smooth fashion, attempting to woo the narrator to his lifestyle. 
But still, the narrator resists him. He's still completely destroyed by the fact that the Ikea dining set that defined him as a person is now completely burst into flames and destroyed. He doesn't want to hear what Durden has to say. So Durden makes him listen. In one of the most memorable of a host of memorable lines throughout the film, Durden shatters the narrator world with one sentence. Quote, The things you own end up owning you. End quote. What both a devastating and liberating statement this is, but how true it rings. I know the truth because I've experienced it multiple times in one particular example. Moving is hard. It's tedious and time-consuming and an unending hassle. I'm lucky in some respects. I'm a single guy that doesn't have a lot of stuff to lug around. When I moved to Boston to, from Boston to Austin, I was able to pack my entire life in the back of my Ford Fusion and 5 by 8 U-Haul with my mom in tow. There just simply wasn't that much to carry. But this all changed when I moved to Austin. I bought shit. A television, a couch from Facebook Marketplace, patio furniture, a light-up mini bar, small dick, can you tell? And other things. If I decided to pack up and move again, I would have it much more difficult. I simply have more stuff. Lugging around delicate and heavy things is a painstakingly hard process, it turns out. Additionally, when you have nice stuff, you usually have to work somewhat decently to maintain it. This is the whole, quote, responsibility thing, rearing its ugly head once again. If you don't work hard to maintain the things that you own, they will deteriorate, sometimes in rapid fashion. This is not good. What is the point of having ownership over anything if you just let it all go to shit? This is the duality of ownership. It's great to have control and domain over things, particularly things much more important than a couch from Facebook Marketplace and a television. But at the same time, it's incredibly hard to keep those things in the pristine condition you would ideally like them to occupy. If those things are of value, the sacrifice to upkeep that value must be consistently in line with that value, or that value that you place upon that thing will decrease precipitously. Additionally, there is the constant problem of toxic victimhood that can cripple your relationship with the ownership of your life and all that it contains. As we've seen throughout our society in the last two years, nearly any and everyone can find a way to victimize themselves. It's a common thing to do now in our society. Have a problem, simply cry out about something being unfair or something. Someone will inevitably come to your defense, particularly if that's something that can enhance their own moral virtue. They really like that. But there's a problem with this method that most of the people who participate in it do not realize. As soon as you declare yourself a victim, you automatically cede control over your life over to the thing that you're declaring is victimizing you. This is the premise of the fourth don't. With this act becoming so embedded and common within so many domains of life ranging from the American military to hinge dates, the webs of all these, quote, problems are interlocking at a more rapid pace than ever before. There's a solution to this however. And that solution is ownership. It's right there in the fourth don't. If you take ownership by ways of accepting willing responsibility and knowing the difference between responsibility and fault, you can give yourself an avenue to regain control over that problem and give yourself an attempt to fix it. Ownership is everything because this principle can and does apply to every aspect of your life that matters. It does not discriminate by what you think is important, what is important, or anything in between. It's a natural law of the world that ownership and the maintenance of the things that you directly correlate with the ownership and maintenance that you take over your life. To Durden's point, the things in your life end up consuming your life. 
It takes a lot of effort, hard work, and time to put those things together to give yourself a worthwhile life. If you let these things fall apart, your life will fall apart with it. We've talked enough in this section about material possessions, so let's move on to the things that actually matter. Your health is a good place to start. Your health is your responsibility, so therefore you have an opportunity to own it. If you do so, you will be liberated to use your enhanced body and mind to navigate the world in nearly complete freedom. You can eat what you want within reason. You can exercise and do things in the sun. You can live a long and profitable life. You will stave off most preventable cancers and heart disease. You have a great chance to have a big family and pass your legacy on through the generations that come after you. But the inverse is also true. If you don't take responsibility for your health, your bad health will own you. Instead of being liberated by your body and mind, you will be enslaved by both. Medical bills will begin to pile up, which could and probably will derail the rest of your life and send your family down with it. Your mind will constantly be running in circles around pessimistic feedback loops that will send nothing but bad and destructive thoughts throughout your soul. You won't live a long life. You'll most likely get both cancer and cardiovascular disease. Your fertility will begin to fail you. Your kids are more likely to have problems. People will cease to respect you when they see that you fail to respect yourself. People don't like people who don't respect themselves. The same thing rings true with how you spend your money. If you take responsibility over your finances and realize that it is your responsibility to maximize that attempt at gaining wealth, good things will happen. You'll do smart things. You'll leverage your company's match in your 401k by investing in it properly. You'll realize that the efficient market hypothesis is absolute fucking dog shit and either invest money yourself or hire someone else to do it for you. You'll put some money away to save for a house with your wife and kids and save for a rainy day in case some idiot crashes into your church's chicken franchise while high on bath salts. You won't go nuts and run yourself through every pay paycheck every single month. You're literally foaming at the mouth, a lot like a bath salts guy, for the next one to hit your direct deposit. If you don't do these things, less than optimal things will happen. You'll blow a good portion of your money on things like bath salts and run your high interest rate loan used Toyota Camry into a church's chicken which will then set you back even more financially, unfortunately. You will think investing and saving are stupid and blow through your paycheck faster than Lou Williams at a magic city. Although, unlike Lou Will, you can't drop 20 a night to bankroll that type of lifestyle. Your pot will run dry when it's time to do important things like build equity in a home, send your kids off to college, or run into the inevitable financial hardships that we all face as adults. Instead, you'll feel boxed in by your wealth or lack thereof. You'll feel that similar feeling of constriction and strangulation with little to no hope of escaping it. Similarly, the way you manage your career directly feeds into this. Having been in the workforce for nearly 18 months now, it's astonishing to see the difference between people who fully own their career by taking responsibility for it and those that do not. Those that do, do astronomically better. The ones who care, the quote, tryhards, actively seek out ways to get better. Now, some people may, may not be in an organization where hard work and effort are rewarded. This is a true thing, and my recommendation to that would be to remove yourself from the situation immediately and get into another one that does place value on those things. But for those that are in that type of environment and do take ownership over their career, the benefits they can reap are tremendous. Ownership in your career leads to tremendous confidence, like all ownership does. Even if you do fail... You'll have great responsibility within to tell you that you can probably fix it if you apply yourself correctly. Responsibility within this domain of life tends to, be you, tends to lead to you being proactive in your job, not reactive. 
When you're actively trying to do things that are good and that can prove yourself that you are a good team player, more opportunity will present itself. That's the rule number four. Notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been advocated. And where has responsibility been advocated, you may say? Well, mostly by a lot of your coworkers, probably. The people who do not take ownership over their career suffer in two ways. First, you will never feel like you have the license to do anything for yourself. You will never think that it is up to you in order to put yourself in a position to succeed. Therefore, you just become a meaningless employee who floats along on the breeze, completely at the mercy of the organization to determine the trajectory of your life in that domain. Second, and therefore following the first, you will always feel like you're getting gypped in a truly meritocratic organization. It will always be someone else's fault why you're not being given additional tasks, making more money, or getting promoted. You will always feel that you're the low man on the totem pole, that someone else who, quote, doesn't deserve it is getting treated differently than you. Hint, they probably are. Hint number two, they're probably getting treated differently than you because they're better than you. This is how the situation normally works in any area of life. Those who work hard, care more, and do more usually end up being more valued by whatever that organization is. Those that do not pin themselves under the boots of those, those that do not, rather, pin themselves under the boots of those who do. This is the rule, not the exception. You're not special. When you refuse to take ownership over your, over your life, you're effectively boxing yourself out of your life. You will have no say in how you can regain control. It's unlikely that you will ever be able to do so, particularly if you let it slip for a long time without interrupting that slide. Ownership is not optional if you want to live a valuable life. Ownership is, indeed, everything. And to hammer this home, we're going to take a cue from a metahuman that I think everyone should know about. And you can look up the post, don'treadthisblog.com, if you want to see that metahuman. That metahuman's name is Tim Kennedy. Tim Kennedy is a former Green Beret, Special Forces sniper, UFC fighter, and about the last person you'd ever want to pick a fight with. I met with his vice coaches this week for training. They said the same. If you need any more convincing, just take a gander at the picture above again. Again, don't read this blog.com. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible, honestly. Tim Kennedy is the most American man I've ever seen in my life. He loves America with every fiber of his soul. He's bled for it, lost friends for it, shot about every gun and explosive device imaginable for it the whole nine yards. America is an idea. We don't have much in common besides that idea. It's part of the reason why it seems like everything is going into the toilet within her right now. We can't seem to get our, that through our heads. The idea of America has many components. But I would argue that freedom is perhaps the most important one. If you asked Tim Kennedy his thoughts, he would probably tell you something similar. He loves freedom. I love freedom. Everyone says they love freedom. But do we really? I think Tim Kennedy does, in large part due to the fact that he can survive all that freedom entails. But let's throw him out of the sample of the rest of us for a second. Human beings feel a need to bend towards control. We don't like when things are random or uncertain. That's why we've built institutions in this country. Institutions and things like them are bulwarks against the endless chaos that ensues without anything to stop it. This is the duality that Jordan Peterson speaks of. 
Without any order to prevent chaos from running rampant, literally anything can and will happen. This is why it is so important to seek the truth and not people who pretend to tell the truth. That's just lying, and does nothing but help to throw the world into a hellish chaotic tailspin. Human beings are afraid of that, as it turns out. And the beer virus is the best example of this. We literally knew nothing about it until it butt-fucked the entire world. And after it did, we were all scared shitless, pun intended. The reason was not because COVID was going to decimate the world's population. It didn't. The reason was that we didn't know what COVID was, when it was going to end, how to cure it, etc. The unknown caused the horribleness of the pandemic, not just the pandemic itself. The reason that we don't like to face as Americans is that we trade freedom for safety all the time. I wrote about this warning in my post when Corona first became a thing. I referenced the Patriot Act, the piece of government legislation where we basically let Dick Cheney watch us have sex through our televisions or something. We gave, us a lot of, we gave up a lot of things during that time period, things we didn't realize would have had as far-reaching consequences as it, as it did. The pandemic had a lot of de devastating consequences on our personal liberties. I was in New York for a marathon last week. I don't remember having to show your personal medical records to eat at a pizzeria before March of 2020. This is one of many sad realities for cities that are run like New York. They don't trust their citizens anymore, so they subject them to this nonsense just to eat a damn pizza. It remains to be seen what will come of this in the future. The beer virus, unfortunately, will likely be with us for the long haul. There's still so much we don't know. Will we have to keep masks on our person at all times? Will there be times of the year where we work from home and those that we don't? Will businesses in the court system be able to keep up with the tsunami of liability lawsuits that are coming? These are all gigantic questions that seemingly no one has the answer to. And yet, as citizens, we've tolerated this. Why? Because we trade freedom for safety. Humans want safety and security to define their lives whether they want to admit it or not. Very few of us know what actual freedom entails. Very few of us want what actual freedom entails. We probably wouldn't be strong enough to survive as individuals if we truly did know or want it. I'm not sure that I would, and I apparently, quote, love freedom. Tim Kennedy has a saying about this that is derived from a Latin verse that originates back to the days of Thomas Jefferson. Freedom is dangerous, and I want it. Remember, Tim Kennedy is perhaps the most freest person I've ever seen. The freest person I've ever seen. Most freest doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the freest person I've ever seen. For example, this is a man who, after three tours of duty overseas, enlisted back in the armed forces strictly for the enjoyment of killing members of ISIS. After an American serviceman was killed a few years ago in brutal fashion by the terror regime, Kennedy, Kennedy took the above picture, again, look to the post, it's really awesome, and posted it to Instagram. The caption read this, quote, Dear ISIS, if you are lucky enough to kill a special forces operator, the possibility of this dropping the biggest non-nuclear bomb ever made on you should be the least of your concerns. For context, we dropped a fucking massive bomb after this, after they killed a service member overseas. There is a vengeance and wrath associated with the loss of one of our brothers. May God have mercy on your soul, because we are coming, and we will have none to give. Sincerely, the U.S. military. End quote. He then posted his home address online and told them to come kill him. Yeah, the guy doesn't give a lot of fucks about safety. He'll take his freedom, thank you very much. We would be wise to follow his example, not by giving your home address to a terrorist group, unless that's your thing, but by embracing what true freedom is. It's not giving anyone else your problems. It's not throwing your personal liberty in the toilet just so you can, quote, feel better about whatever someone, someone is lying to you about to make you feel better. Freedom and liberty are two sides of the same coin for a reason. 
Only when we embrace that liberation can we create an avenue to escape from the negative aspects of freedom that can either constrain us or make us suffer unimaginably. Which brings us one last time to Jocko Willink, a friend of Tim Kennedy. Badasses tend to find one another, if you can't tell by now. Jocko Willink has another phrase other than, quote, extreme ownership that he lives by. It's not quite as famous, but I believe it defines him more. More so, he's become internally linked through it to his, through his time as a fight figure in the public eye. Discipline equals freedom. Taking ownership over your life means having discipline. It means crafting things you want by hard work and sweat equity. It means saying no to things. It means saying yes to things that can impact you in a positive manner. If you don't have ownership, you don't have a life. Your life ends up constricting you and squeezing all of your essence out of you until someone else can use it for their benefit and not yours. Discipline, by the way of responsibility and ownership, prevents this. It allows you to pursue the freedom that Kim Kennedy talks about and gain all the things that could possibly be achieved should you choose it as your mindset. Every single person named in this post that embodied this mentality has been a success in their chosen profession. The model works if applied correctly. It is only up to the person who is to do the work to apply it. I say the phrase, own the day, a lot. But owning the day is not simply a phrase. It's a way to go about living your life in the most beneficial way for yourself that you possibly can. If you don't own the day or own anything, you cede control over that anything to someone else. This is not wise to do with your life. It is too valuable, too rare, to not have a say in what goes on within it. You, and only you, should determine how you navigate it. Ownership is, indeed, everything. Take control, own the day, own your life. Because who knows, some random dude in a monogram sweater vest might convince you otherwise, if you don't. So, okay, everyone, that's my post for this week. So thank you for tuning in. I like that one because I like the topic a lot. I like, to, I, I like talking about those guys. They're, they're heroes, in my opinion, to me, at least. So hope you guys find it, found it valuable. I hope you guys are having a great week. Again, watch my boy Max Holloway fight. Watch all the great sports this weekend. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your freedom. Happy Veterans Day. I should have said that in the past if I have any veterans listening. You guys are awesome. Thank a veteran. They're great people. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll see you next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think you well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?